Steve Yabsley. Now, I was watching television earlier this week and uh, one of the guests I saw was called David Murren. He is a, a global forecaster, a deep strategic thinker, and I found him utterly compelling, fascinating, sobering and rather scary as well. And he's agreed to come on the programme to talk a little bit about his work and his background. I'm delighted to welcome him to the programme. David, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Steve. Thank you very much for asking me to come on your show. Not at all. As I mentioned, David is a global forecaster, an advisor, an author and a passionate sailor. We're going to talk a little bit about his life and times and what he's been thinking about recently. And believe me, I'm sure you'll find it fascinating. But tell me, first of all, Dave, on a lighter note, a bit about Zulu yachting, because I know you do these bespoke high end charters because you've always loved the sea, haven't you? Absolutely. I I was uh, actually conceived on a boat. My father was in a holiday in uh, Holland for six weeks, so I know exactly where where the whole thing started. And I was brought up sailing from the earliest age in a wooden boat. And uh, my father conditioned me by saying, buy a boat before a house. And sure enough, I did somewhere around my 20s. I bought Setaweo, which is actually the boat you see in the pictures. And uh, it isn't a luxury for me. It's a kind of way of life, whether it's racing a boat or living on a boat or cruising. They're all aspects of the sea and they're very much part of my mindset and upbringing. And I've learned some of my formative lessons, actually, at the hands of the sea, forcing you to understand how multiple variable sort of environments force you to respond and think differently and also how to lead a lead a team on a boat which i think is really 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 critical well i get the most enormous pleasure out of it so yeah yeah, it's a intrinsic intrinsic part of my life steve yeah it's been a lifelong passion for you and i can understand why but let's just briefly talk a little bit about your background where 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 were you from you say you were conceived on a boat Where, where did you come into the world originally uh, <laughs> I'm English. I think uh, I'm Cockney by definition, within the sound of bow bells. But my parents were uh, well-travelled uh, at a time probably when, you know, we lost the empire and England had become a bit myopic. So I was brought up travelling the world and seeing the world as one place. And uh, and I was educated in Farnham in Surrey. I went through the state school system just at the beautiful moment when the, the grammar school shifted to comprehensive schools and someone had a brilliant idea to put the grammar school intake at the comprehensive secondary school level. And that taught me something very intrinsic. And that was that freedom came about through your ability to protect yourself physically, because if you spoke differently or you thought differently, you would be at the hands of people that um, were quite violent at heart and some of them ended up in prison. So it was an early lesson for me that our individual freedoms come at the price of learning how to defend ourselves. And that's extrapolated out to our democracies today. Well, you studied geophysics at Exeter University and then started what was a fascinating career. You worked initially as a seismologist for Shell in Papua New Guinea. There's something about Papua New Guinea that's always fascinated me, David. I know you were looking for oil there, but the culture there is so extraordinary. Um, What was it like as an experience working there? Well, well, it was the, the greatest gift, actually, because I remember when the phone rang and the, the, the director of operations said, you're off to Papua New Guinea. I actually thought it was in Africa back in sort of, you know, the 84 period. And in fact, the next day, there was a program about this mad woman who canoed down the CPIC. And the only program had been on New Guinea really for years. Um, and that was exactly where I was destined. What was fascinating about the region I worked in is there were, at the time, there were about 2 million Papua New Guineans who had 700 languages and 2,000 dialects. And in the Sepik Basin, which is the second biggest river course in the world, 500 miles from the coast, it was still a mile and a half wide in its meanderings. And along this really sort of very, very swamp-like terrain, small 
um, communities and very small. I mean, you know, biggest one is about 500 tribes lived in this environment, which were mosquito ridden and malaria ridden. And it was a really tough environment, you know, spreading out from the, from the sea, from the river, you would find these swamps, which were, um, sago swamps and sago is a big fat tree that when you chop it down you can either pulp it to make the carbohydrates they eat or you leave it and the sago bug bug grows in it and it's really like a prawn so you could get protein or carbohydrate from it but it had these fawns and these palm fawns had nails that were about two inches long in them and they would lay on top of each other so when you slipped off the bridging into the swamp it was like a man trap because the nails didn't decay and they came out in your legs it's full oh. of crocodiles and just about all the things you ever imagined. Very unhealthy. Did you but have an amazing any, experience? Did you have any success finding oil? Uh, we found the anticline that went with an oil structure, but they didn't find it in the region. The real success was the insight into collective human behaviours I had on my first day of work when one person's anger spread to another. This Augustus, the son of a chief, of course, he was fully armed with bows and arrows and a machete. I was about 50 miles from any help. And his apoplectic anger spread alarmingly to all the other 60 members of his group and my workforce. And I remember thinking, great, here lies David killed on his first day of work by a bunch of mad Papua New Guineans. And, uh, and I had to front it out by walking through them, which culturally wasn't what they did. If you ran from them, they would attack you. But no one ever moved forward into an aggressive environment like that. And um, I managed to front it out by moving forward and almost willing them not to attack me. And then went through a second stage of going to my tent and one by one, they come and sort of smash me over the head. And uh, I survived that. And about two hours later, I was surrounded by these vacant Papua New Guineans sitting on the floor like a child that had a temper tantrum. And essentially, it was as if they'd charged like a capacitor and discharged with emotion. And then the three years following, I got to, I learned the language, you know, understood the people. It was an amazing adventure. And when I came back and joined JP Morgan, I couldn't believe that there were these educated people like myself, part of modern mankind, and suddenly I recognized that something completely different was happening on that trading floor. And that was that we, like Papua New Guineans, share our emotions collectively and as a result of it become highly predictable. We just have a slightly higher threshold of individuality, but we're not aware of the shared collective emotional pattern. And those observations dictated everything I've done since. Indeed, you mentioned you were at JP Morgan, where you were for around six years, and then you founded your first financial market advisory business in 1996 on your 30th birthday. Um, just tell me briefly about that. Well, I remember standing on the helipad about the time of the riot thinking, I'm not going to work for someone else for too long. And I also knew I was quite individualistic. And one day as an individual, I would be forced to say what I thought. So there was a duration on my career if I chose to be there for decades. Um, and so I wanted to develop the skills to run my own business. And because I was one of the first proprietary traders and I developed a whole group in the bank that predicted collective behavioral patterns in a way no one had ever done before and predicted markets as a result in, in, with accuracy that was unheard of, that essentially I translated that into my first hedge fund and advisory business when I was 30 on my 30th birthday. And then over time evolved a second one, which was specialized on emerging markets. And that grew to be really a world leader in what we did. Now, uh, these days, you're, you're an author, you're a speaker, you're an advisor, and you've long been fascinated uh, by what you hinted at there, uncovering deep-seated patterns in history, which you then use to predict the future You know, for geopolitics, for markets. And you've had a remarkable track record for success over the years, haven't you? Um, I have, actually. And, and it's fascinating because what I really did, it was after 9-11, and I was watching 9-11 firsthand. 
And my father was in aviation. So the moment that plane hit the tower, the first one, I knew it wasn't an accident. And I remember it was shocking for all of us that saw it, truly shocking. But I remember thinking this this to me means more than just shock. It, it, if I'm right about this, it, it means the world isn't as we think, that we haven't won the Cold War as a democratic Western series of nations, and we're not going to run this forever. Maybe this is a product of internal competition within intelligence agencies, which is a which is a product of actual decline. And what happens if we're undergoing a tidal wave of a cycle that I couldn't see in 100 years of prices, because price information only goes back really 100 and a bit years? What happens if it's a bigger wave to do with the civilization of the West? So what I did was I created a model inverting all the cycles I'd seen in price into a model of behavior, which I call the five stages of empire, five distinct stages that all empires and systems go through. And then I searched history and I was absolutely dumbfounded to find that, you know, going back 2000 years, empires have consistently behaved the same way through these five cycles, irrespective of technology. So, and that cycle is based on a collective organism of um, how to maximize effect and impact and a peak and, and, and then a decline. And in detail, in terms of not just about it goes up and it comes down, but what we do with our politicians, how we have civil wars, basically how the system expands, how it becomes more moribund, and how it goes into decline, and mainly it goes into decline because the lateral people that created the system are no longer allowed to run it because there's a, there's a, there's a schism in human construct between linear and lateral thinking. And it's the lateral thinkers that create and the linear thinkers that perpetuate. So as soon as you stop having lateral thinking in a form of leadership, you're no longer adaptive and the system loses competitiveness and then starts to decline. And when it's confronted with a lateral system that's young and rising, the linear system just gets swept away, however big it is. And that system has been, that process of evolution has been going on for thousands of years of our human social systems. And the realization of that and the evidence was quite overwhelming. Because what it then allowed me to do was specifically locate every country. This is back in 2001 on that cycle. And I concluded that there was such a thing as a super empire, essentially not just one system or nation alone, and that the super Western Christian empire had started with the Portuguese and the Spanish and the Dutch and then the French. Then Britain became the first global maritime power and then followed by two challenges from Germany and then America, the last of the Western Christian empires, of that particular cycle. And the conclusion was shocking. The decline of America, which had started in 01, was the last of the Christian empires in decline. And nature abhors a vacuum. And so obviously there's another system rising up and that comes in the super Asian empire. And the shock about that was it hasn't just suddenly rocked up. It started with the Japanese as the first empire and the Chinese as the second. And their rise started in 1902 with the Boxer Revolution. So we're facing a system that's been rising and growing for 120 years. And that is a profound observation in terms of momentum and the way they move into our vacuum. And so those conclusions were drawn back in 02 when really no one even thought that was possible. Well, you we were seeing the rise of China. You were incredibly ahead of the curve, and there's so much to discuss that. Uh, the decline of America and the West and the rise of China. And you said many things that I'm sure would, would, would worry people, would concern people. You say that not only has what you could term a sort of third world war with China begun, but we've already lost it. Well, um, I've been warning about these shifts of power are never peaceful. 
And essentially, the, the, the real challenge is the Chinese dupe the West into the basic liberal belief that if we gave them capitalism, they would become democratic. And the CCP never, ever planned to allow that to happen. What they did need was Western capital to come in and build the biggest manufacturing base in the world. And the result of that was they stripped us of our IP and then subsequently could outproduce us in an arms race, which is what they're doing right now. Yeah, I don't think the process is over, but I do think we need to wake up immediately. And yet, and there I are... think that if we if we really wish to make a difference, we have to deter conflict through strength. Uh, and yet, there are so many red flags, and it seems like the West is asleep at the wheel. I mean, set aside Hong Kong and Taiwan, uh, and even the treatment of the Uyghurs. Just look at things like the Belt and Road Initiative, the building of the islands in the South China Sea, uh, the paying off of countries to build infrastructure, you know, like ports and airports, which is taking place in Africa and other parts of the world, the control of natural resources, oil, gas, rare minerals. I mean, all over the world, it's happening, isn't it? Steve, you took the words out of my mouth. And, you know, there has to be a huge question as to why we have not identified it. And there's a very interesting aspect to this, which is the Chinese haven't just overtly sought to challenge us. They've covertly challenged us. So they've undermined our international institutions like the WTO or the World Health Organization. And they've targeted all our politicians and their families so that they are making money from somewhere in the Chinese route. So Biden, Hunter Biden is a good example. I'm afraid Boris Johnson's family is another example. And the net effect is, 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 is the population expects the leadership to act and the leadership's immobilized by self-interest. And so we, we, are really, we really have been immobilized on so many levels. And then there's coupled with the process of liberal systems can, are very poor at recognizing aggressive intentions from a system using a different construct of power because we just project our own values onto them. And it's crazy because the evidence is overwhelming that there is hostile intent. And so many people say to me, oh, the Chinese are really benign. They've never been to war with anyone. And I look and say, have you really studied their history? They had a civil war, which was the end of the first stage of empire, starting in 02 and the ending you know, in the 50s. And the moment they finished that civil war, they literally invaded every country in the neighborhood they could. And they expanded as quickly as they could up until the limitations of America's constrictions. I'm sure. And they finally found those limitations in the third Taiwan Straits crisis in '96, and since then they developed a covert process to to get to the top, which they've used against us. And now they have enough power; they're going completely overt. And we are still asleep, and we've been asleep to Russia too, which is a different challenge. Russia is an opportunistic bully, but it's really concerning that you know, Ukraine is a direct product of the route from Afghanistan which is poor leadership at an ultimate extent by Biden, but also because countries like Britain have failed to spend money on defence. And a series of prime ministers and governments have failed to recognise the rising threat and that defence is critical to defer conflict. And we have as much responsibility in that as the aggressor, in my opinion, because it's up to each of us to defend ourselves, as I mentioned on the playground at school, and as nations to do the same. And we are completely unprepared right now for these two belligerent actors which are now moving against us. Now, we um, heard just recently about uh, China agreeing with the uh, uh, Argentinians that the Falklands wasn't something that should belong to the British. And I'm sure a lot of people would have sat up and thought, what? Uh, Because uh, uh, South America, generally speaking, was seen as the USA's backyard and China sort of kept away from it. But this is a new arena, isn't it? 
Well, the Monroe Doctrine, you're right, should keep everyone out of it, and America was meant to protect it. But one of the signs of um, a contracting hegemon is its inability to protect its boundaries. And Latin America has been you know, well and truly inveigled, like Africa, by the Chinese in the most incredible way with the application of their capital, with the sole goal to extract resources and secondary goal to gain political support. And it's an easy piece of support to basically support Argentina over the Malvinas because in their eyes, it's theirs. But this is something that's happening elsewhere. For example, in Barbados. I mean, Barbados has turned its back on the Commonwealth and is now becoming pro-Chinese. And when I was out there just before Christmas, I asked every single Barbadian I could find and said, tell me what happened. And they said, we had no idea. We didn't even know it had happened to us. We didn't vote for it. It just happened. We have 25 members of parliament and suddenly it was upon us. And that country is now pro-Chinese and therefore will probably be a naval base in the Caribbean for the Chinese. Because really this colonialization process that we see through the Belt, the Belt and Road, I should probably go back a bit. The Belt and Road is really was conceived to create a supply chain in the case of a conflict with America where America controlled the oceans. So it was really its fallback position. And it has the advantages of reaching into the Gulf and through Pakistan, more and more flow of oil can take place through other routes. Because the thing that China fears, like every country fears from a hegemonic naval power, is the naval blockade. And it's really important to remember that World War I wasn't, didn't end on the 11th of the 11th of the 11th. For nine months, the Royal Navy blockaded Germany into submission, starving 450,000 Germans before they agreed to sign the Versailles Treaty. We almost lost World War II because of the blockade of the U-boats. And a Cold War would have been deeply difficult to, to, to push back on because of Russian submarines. And today, Putin is trying to emulate that capability even now and would make our great difficulty in the Atlantic. So naval blockade and maritime control is the ultimate arbiter of hegemonic power. And so the Belt and Road system was designed to circumvent it. And the mechanisms of small countries like Barbados or whether it's Argentina or Sri Lanka, they're really a string of pearls that provide naval bases for the extension of Chinese naval power as they build more and more ships than anyone else, as they do have the greatest shipbuilding capability in the world right now. I'd be interested to hear your view on the pandemic. Of course, uh, it has uh, long been mooted that it may have originated at the Wuhan Centre for Virology. I appreciate that it's not a speciality of yours, this particular uh, topic. But what's your, what's your view? What's your hunch on the origin of the pandemic? Well, as you ask, it is actually something that I'm uh, well versed in because in my book, Breaking the Code of History, published in 09, but written five years before, I made a prediction that the, the next world pandemic would come from China and its origins would be a Chinese PLAN weapons laboratory as part of an asymmetric process to seek advantage over the West. And that was in 2009. So when the Wuhan virus made its appearance in December, I literally did used every mechanism I could to understand what it was. And very quickly, the degree of human transmission and virulence suggested that this wasn't something that, that came from an intermediate host and migrated gradually like MERS from a camel. It was something that was a complete product on release that spread like wildfire. It wasn't a, a biological weapon of destruction. It was a weapon of economic constriction. So I made the call that this was a laboratory origined um, pandemic on the 5th of January, when I tried to warn everyone it was coming. And I've got to say that, you know, my work is about seeing things before others. I was just stunned that the Western world couldn't see what happened. And the moment Taiwan closed its gates, you know that they understood the Chinese well, and there was a threat and we just carried on. 
which was, I think, you know, our national security advisor at the time, Mark said, well, you know, I think is highly responsible for that lack of alert and awareness that we should have been through. Um, and, and moving on to the origins of is it intentional or not? Um, there is a paper on my site available. It's 72 pages. It's definitely a weapons grade release, in my opinion. Um, the thing that the only small piece is what did they do after the release? Well, they weaponized its distribution to make sure it maximized damage in the Western world. Um, and I think that its timing is fascinating. I created eight criteria that if I was a military planner looking to release it, to create economic constriction in the West to compensate for Trump's um, trade embargoes, which had really woken the world up to what China was, and recognizing that she had to complete his domination of the world by 2030, he didn't have much time. And so if you look at the timing of it, you look at the strategic advantages, and then if you look at eight criteria you need for release, which I highlight in this report, if any one of those criteria were not in place, it could never be viewed as an intentional release. I think every eight were in place. Now so I'm- I am quite... I'm I'm amazed we haven't responded more strongly to basically um, the risks of what this represents to us. Now, you you said a lot of very provocative things on the programme today, and I'm sure some people listening now will think that you are exaggerating the perceived threat. They'll say, as you mentioned earlier, that China is a benign presence. Do you think, realistically, the influence of China will compromise our liberty in our lifetime in Western Europe? So... so um, I should say, first of all, that if you look at my website and you look at the predictions we've been able to make using our social algorithms of behavior and our understanding of how human systems work, we have an uncanny track record. We predicted every election in the US and the UK, the path of Brexit, and a whole host of other things that most people consider to be unpredictable. So I'm always very careful about what I say and how I say it rather than just being alarmist to attract attention. I believe that from 2020 onwards, something happened in China that everyone has missed. And that is the model they created was a manufacturing base for the world that exported to the world and their revenue derived from that process. From the moment the pandemic was released, the Chinese shifted to an internally fueled consumer society. So their goal was to fund all of their manufacturing process sales through the demand of their internal economy and make up for it through an arms race. So one of the reasons why we've seen supply chain difficulties is because they don't want to provide us or expect to provide us in the outside world anymore. And a strategy like that has only been enacted once in history that I know of, and that was enacted in 1936 after the Germans invaded the Rhinelands. And Germany did exactly the same. It started stockpiling resources and it shifted to an internally fueled consumer society. And what is little understood about that dynamic is that Germany would have been bust by 1940 or going to war. So if Chamberlain understood that, he never would have sought peace because Germany was really on a, on a war or bust program. And I think she has set himself on exactly the same path. They have all sorts of financial difficulties right now through the constrictive gap of internal demand not matching external demand, which is why we're seeing their demand cycle dip. And the way that you counter that as a leader of an autocracy is you expand through aggression. So I think they're very close to the next stage. And I think Taiwan is very much on the cards, especially after Putin has invaded Ukraine and the West is perceived to be impotent for not stopping it. In terms of their long term goals, 
I am afraid to say um, that what we've seen with the Uyghurs and Hong Kong, where six generations of Chinese people who were dedicated to democracy, were highly industrious, have been suppressed within six months, should be ringing alarm bells in our heads. The CCP has done it to its own population by removing the lateral individualistic leaders within society. They've completely suppressed the Uyghurs and they've completely suppressed Hong Kong. They have in their ability, the ability to suppress a hostile society by removing the individuals with the systems they use, which are AI-based, leaving the rest of the population highly complicit to the rules they're given. They see the West and they see democracy as a virus, and that virus could infect them like it infected the Russians. So I cannot see that conflict with China, which seems to be inevitable unless we can deter it by spending emergency amounts of money on defense, and I still think there's a narrow window to do that, so all hope is not lost. If we could deter them, there may be peace. But if we don't and we lose that conflict, you're looking at the end of democracy across the world. Well, it's the only system that could expand on. It's 1.2 billion people able to expand across the world and spread its system of suppression. So this is mutually exclusive to democracy. Well, it's frightening stuff and extremely thought-provoking. David, thank you so much for your time on the programme today. If people want more details, they can look at your website, which is david.murrin.co.uk. We've got to finish up on a a lighter note, David, because it's been rather (laughs) doomy-gloomy. I mean, uh, you're looking forward to getting out on your yacht over the next few weeks? Look, look, I I should say that you're going to laugh at me, but I'm an optimist by nature. And so I just want to say by highlighting a threat, doesn't mean that threat comes through if you recognize it and respond to it. So I'm optimistic that by warning of this threat, we can adapt and change, but we just have to do it quickly. And yes, I am extremely excited about the summer coming on my boat uh, because we've got a great racing program and uh, there's nothing more than I love to race my old classic boat against other classic boats in a in a club that I started years ago that's been thriving ever since. So I'm, I'm excited and privileged to be able to experience life through that lens. What a pleasure to have you on today, David. Thank you so much for your participation on today's programme. Thank you, Steve. It's been a real pleasure. And thanks for your interest in picking up the, the clip on GB News. That is uh, David Murren, a deep strategic thinker. He's a global forecaster with an incredibly good track record. You can find out more about him and his uh, various books. He's written four books, indeed, uh, at his website, david.murrin.co.uk. 